part of the Christian and politics. And uh, I've been over the past few weeks just trying to lay before you some considerations for your political engagement, political involvement, uh, in particular, how you might think in three categories. One would be the category of political uh, engagement, such as speaking, writing, posting things, um, trying to persuade people or to campaign on behalf of people. Um, and then a second, which we are in the middle of, is considerations for following politics, just watching, listening, learning, um, being even entertained by it, which might be one of the problems with it, depending on how we, uh, how we respond to that. The term was used a couple of weeks ago, edutainment. Uh, so I think that that's something that should be in the front of our minds. And then also, uh, briefly at the end of it, we'll talk about some considerations for running for office, just in case any of you have aspirations for that. Um, some questions just to pick up uh, where we left off in terms of considerations for following politics. It's been a couple of weeks, so I want to just review briefly. Um, one of these is, do I need to know this for some direct reason related to my areas of responsibility? Are you a, a husband? Are you a dad? Are you an employee? Are you someone who has to deal with the, the family finances? Is this going to affect your church? Is this going to affect the way you relate to your neighbors? You need to look at the things that you are responsible to do biblically and say, is this something that I need to know for uh, doing this better? Or is this something that might be helpful to know? And you can even triage it in that way. What must I know versus what might be helpful to know? So it could be helpful to know about new laws. It could be helpful to know, uh, as we talked about, maybe in particular about cultural things that are tied in with political things. Uh, what are the new things that, you're, that uh, your family is going to be exposed to? What are the things that other people in your church are dealing with? What are the things that are going to be talked about at work? So it might be good to have some level of familiarity with those. But uh, just thinking about that in terms of do I actually need to know this? Is there some benefit or am I just kind of leaning on this vague idea that, Hey, I need to stay informed because aren't we all supposed to be good informed citizens? That's what we're told, so that's what I should do. Instead, think about what God has told you that you must do and then go from there. All right, another consideration, uh, will this make me more anxious if I do or don't find out about it? And there are plenty of things in the world that are going to enable us to be anxious, things that are both near and far. Um, scripture tells us that we are supposed to cultivate a way of thinking and an attitude and a disposition that is not anxious and that we are supposed to really to take part in the privilege of uh, what flows out of knowing God and his trustworthy character. And there are a lot of things where we would rather just be anxious than to actually do that, where we come up with things to be worried about. It's like we just aren't content with being at peace and not having a lot to worry about because we can trust God. It's like we've got to go out and find other things to be anxious about. And of course, there's no shortage of those. You have a bottomless or at least uh, enough of an amount of anxiety inducing activity going on in the world to fill your entire 24 7 365 there's you could really just continue to read story after story after story from somewhere in the world someone's plotting this kind of thing someone was attacked for this kind of thing here's what might be coming down the road here's what might not be coming down the road here's what this could look like for your kids here's what this could look like for your great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren and so on there's plenty of stuff to be anxious about. Scripture tells us not to be anxious about anything. And there's a promise of rest that comes through 
following biblical instructions for laying up treasure in heaven, for going about God's business in the way that he says to do that, for seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6 talks about. And so we should just be very careful that we are not cultivating a worried heart when God has told us that we are supposed to not be anxious about anything. Now, obviously, there will be things that come into your life where those commands are maybe even more directly given. Like, I'm, uh, you know, you're worried, Philippians, about something. But Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 tells us not to be anxious about anything. Well, there are reasons why they might have been anxious. But the problem is that often we come up with and even manufacture those kinds of things on our own just through putting ourselves in needlessly anxiety-producing or tempting situations. So I would just encourage you to think about that. Uh, okay, another thing. Will this tempt me to unwise behavior? Will this tempt me to unwise behavior? Am I going to, by virtue of following after politics and morality and those kinds of things in the culture, am I going to um, pursue things? Am I going to disproportionately be all about things that are, uh, that are unwise? I mentioned 1 Timothy 6. The love of money causes us to do certain things. And people who love money, they want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a snare, Paul says, and many foolish and harmful desires. And this can happen whether it's money. Um, perhaps it might be a love of safety, a love of safety. I think that you, you, might, be, um, you might look around and see, well, there are some people that I think are inordinately concerned with safety. And that some of that maybe came out over the past few years. It might be um, unwise behavior in terms of just being um, prepared for any possible thing that might come in the future. So you spend all of your mental energy and all of your time just worried about protecting yourself from some possible thing that could go wrong somewhere in the future. And making sure that you are absolutely prepared for that no matter what. To the neglect of the other responsibilities that you have as a Christian. So these are things that you want to just make sure of as, you're, as you are hearing um, people talk about what is important in their minds in the world. This is what you have to have. You have to be ready for this. You have to avoid this. You have to make sure you have this. Make sure that you're not letting those things dictate you acting in ways that aren't in line with Scripture. That then just become a kind of obsession that is, uh, that is extremely disproportionate to what you should actually be doing. All right. Uh, also, am I being truthful and overcoming personal bias in my assessment of people's views and opinions. Am I being truthful and overcoming personal bias in my assessment of people's views and opinions? We need to make sure that we speak the truth and that we, uh, that we affirm the truth, that we don't just believe what we want to believe because we want to believe it, but instead that we actually make sure we know what the truth is. Um, a few other considerations before we get into the last ones that we haven't talked about. Um, does this cause me to be more arrogant and unloving toward others? Does it cause me to be more arrogant or unloving? If this is the case, then why are we cultivating that kind of mentality? Scripture tells us we should be humble toward other people, not to be conceited. But instead, very often our political diet um, can make us think about other people with a, with, with a really high degree of arrogance toward them. All of those foolish people who don't know what they're doing, all of those unrighteous people that really are just living apart from God and don't really care, and I am better than them and I'm wiser than them. The things that we listen to can cause us to think that way. Um, in light of that, also, does this feed my self-righteousness or can I use it in humility? Does this feed my self-righteousness 
or can I use it in humility? We want to make sure that we are not dependent upon our own righteousness before God, that we don't think that we are, that we don't think that we're better than other people intrinsically just because they are doing things that God says not to do. And hey, we're Christians. We're obeying what God says. Now, Christians should behave in ways that are better than, uh, than people who are not Christians because we should be obeying God's commands out of a new heart. But we want to make sure that we're not... Uh, that we're not doing things that are making us think that we have some leg up on others and that we are, we are ourselves uh, just more important or better than they are. Um, will this affect us aiming for heavenly treasures versus earthly treasures? Are we storing up treasures on earth or is this going to make us store up treasure in heaven? We talked about will this change our actual vote or has our mind already been made up? Are we just following to kind of have uh, a good time and entertain ourselves or, and we justify it on the basis of, yeah, I need more information or are we going to actually listen to this because we need to know or we're going to follow this because we need to know what's going on. Just be realistic with yourself about that. Um, are we using time for politics to the neglect of actual responsibilities or um, are we blocking out Bible consumption and prayer by spending our time on this? This doesn't mean that you should always read the Bible instead of following politics completely in terms of every level, but are you giving yourself time to tend to the things that are going to cultivate your relationship with the Lord? Are you actually meditating on the law of the Lord? Are you praying? Are you thinking about scripture? Or is it just all blocked out by this? Or really by any other kind of entertainment or any kind of uh, consumption? All right, uh, two more um, I think this is two more where we'll pick up from last time. Am I imbibing the way people think about others and about God because I like their politics and because I listen to them? In other words, do I get attached to somebody's political view and then say, well, now I'm going to start to follow what this person thinks about other people. And our mind becomes renewed and conformed to our favorite political pundits rather than being conformed to what God says. So we start to think about people based upon what people we follow say about them. Um, and then does this make me think of other Christians in ways that contradict Scripture? Does this make me think of other Christians in ways that contradict Scripture? So um, I'm going to read for you Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which should be a familiar text to you. This is a passage that is on the unity that uh, that exists within the body of Christ that we are supposed to cultivate and to maintain and to protect. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What is that unity of the spirit? He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Um, do we see Christians first and foremost in this way, or do we see someone that we disagree with them about some cultural or political issue? If you look at another Christian and the first thing that you think about them is, well, they disagree with me about social justice or they disagree with me about you know what the uh, border situation should be or they disagree with me about what the church should do with relationship to COVID. If that's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about another Christian, I'm not entirely convinced that 
That's the model that Paul is laying out in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't have um, various issues that you could talk through or that you could have opinions about. You're welcome to have all kinds of, uh, I, all kinds of viewpoints and opinions about those things. But um, think about does the way that you follow these things and does the way that you think about them and what you read and who you read, is it actually cultivating in you this, this uh, priority of being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? Now, it may be that you're making every effort to do that and that people on the other side of uh, such a disagreement are not making every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And in some ways, there's not much that you can do about that. So if you are, uh, if you might disagree with someone on something, but you're making every effort when they're a Christian to actually, you know, live in harmony with them as a Christian, but they just want to talk about nothing but your differences, then, okay, maybe that's going to be difficult to, to uh, overcome because there is a responsibility on both sides. However, we need to do our part in making sure that we are fulfilling the instructions that are here. Um, also, then, um, well, let me just, uh, no, this is good. We'll, we'll go on to the next point. Um, Another question along similar lines, does this make me think of non-Christians in ways that contradict Scripture? Non-Christians in ways that contradict Scripture. And again, just want to put before you the passage from Titus 2. We're supposed to malign no one. Um, Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at what? Peace with all men. Be at peace with all men. This does not mean that you compromise the truth. It does mean you should consider not cultivating an attitude of hostility and combativeness toward them. Uh, and then we looked recently at a passage in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus gets on to the Pharisees who had a problem with him eating with uh, tax collectors and sinners. And what did Jesus say? I did not come to call those who are sick. I didn't come to call sinners, or but the, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are sick don't need a, are, the, are the ones who need a physician, not those who are well. Okay, uh, let me uh, let me just give you a couple of more things, and then we can we can uh, ask questions and discuss some things. Um, so, is what I'm following cultivating biblical wisdom? Or worldly wisdom. So James chapter 3. James chapter 3. The end of the chapter. He says, uh, verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And then he shows what real wisdom looks like. Of course, the reason why people um, promote their ideas and follow ideas in the political or any other realm is because they claim that they have wisdom. They know how things should be. But what does God say is divine wisdom? He says the wisdom from above is first pure. Pure. This means that it follows according with purity, which means that it is dealing with sin properly. It means that it is purely motivated. And then there are some attitudes that come out of this. It's peaceable, gentle, reasonable. Peaceable, gentle, 
reasonable. There is this entire package of attitudes and dispositions that are here in these three words where people do not find you to be um, harsh, where they don't find you to be someone that is just looking for a fight all the time. Um, you might even see in your marginal note, if you have this here on the word reasonable, that it says willing to yield. This doesn't mean that you are willing to say someone is right when they actually are wrong, but it does mean you don't have to have your way. You don't have to get your way. So there is uh, an attitude here that is summed up by these three things. Full of mercy and good fruits, which means that you are looking to care for others, especially in their need. But this isn't, um, this, this here, the way that this is carried out doesn't mean that someone is squishy. They're not a, a squishy kind of person where they're just willing to compromise because it says they are unwavering and they are without hypocrisy. So they stand for what is actually true. They stand in the truth and they don't waver from that. And then um, they, they practice this unhypocritically. They are without hypocrisy. This is what godly wisdom looks like. Um, so ask yourself, is this the model that I'm following? Is this the kind of pattern that I am following? Am I cultivating biblical or worldly wisdom? Um, and then there is just one more, one more thing that I want to mention, which is, um, are you being truthful uh, in particular about the weaknesses of your own preferred side or your own preferred candidate? Are you being honest about them, about the flaws that someone might have. Now, this doesn't mean that if you are in favor of a political party, uh, a political candidate, this doesn't mean that you have to spend your first and then all of your time talking about that person, just highlighting all the flaws. This doesn't mean that you're majoring on that. But what it does mean is, are you actually willing to acknowledge where there is, hey, you know, maybe I agree with 90% of this. Or yes, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I like what this guy or that guy is doing. Uh, and instead of saying, and he can do no wrong, as if he's somehow Christ, you say, yeah, uh, but I really don't like this thing or that thing. And I'm just making an overall assessment. So are you being truthful and honest about the flaws of your preferred candidate or party or platform? Are you being honest about the limitations of such people or such institutions and such entities? Or are you afraid that admitting that there might be a weakness is going to open up to being maybe disproved by someone else? Or maybe uh, someone doesn't agree with you and someone doesn't come along to your opinion. We need to be truthful. We need to operate according to the truth. So just make sure that you're willing to be honest about those things. Um, okay, so that is our list of things that are um, considerations for political following, for just following along what's going on in the world. Do you have any questions or comments about these things or uh, ways that you have uh, attempted to interact with this as well? And maybe guiding principles where you say, this is what the scripture says, how can I apply this? Let's talk about this for a minute. Talk about political, uh, following politics, considerations for following politics. Anything that's on your mind about that?
Yeah, so you're talking uh, essentially about the concept of the public square. Uh, what, what should people be, what should Christians do? Should we just let everything take place outside of our own involvement? Let the discussions be formed and framed by people who are, who are there? Um, and you, you, you say it kind of seems like we have ceded that territory and just said we're, we're not going to be in, involved in that. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, yeah, so probably several thoughts on that that, uh, that, I could, that I could mention, and these would just be somewhat in seed form, and, and I think this might um, be something that we covered here before the end of the, the, whole, uh, the whole series that, that I'm doing on this. But um, just the quick hit thoughts on that would be that, first of all, when we think about what are our goals as Christians and what is our what is our mandate? It falls into the realm of making disciples, which means that you are um, things that should be the, the activities that you're doing as the church should really fall largely under two categories. One is evangelism, and the other is discipleship. And then there can be an overlap between those efforts. So you can preach the gospel, and you can edify believers, and and um, preach the, and, and you can bring um, others by God's grace to salvation. Those, that can happen through the same activity, the same effort. But it really, it fits in one of those categories. So are we teaching or enabling the practice of good works and of godliness among Christians? Or are we uh, tending toward the evangelization and the, uh, the winning to salvation of people who are not Christians? And if your efforts in the um, quote unquote public square are to those ends, then you can say, well, this is under the mandate of I'm doing this as a gospel opportunity. And I can see ways where um, just keeping the Bible in front of the public in some way could possibly be something like that. Like you have a, uh, I don't know, let's just say you have a YouTube channel and you just talk about the Bible and here's a history of the Bible and here's what it says and you're promoting Bible literacy. Now, hopefully you're, you know, trying to, your goal is to persuade people about the truthfulness of the scripture and about what it says and to help them know what it says. But maybe something like that where you're, you're not necessarily speaking to a direct audience. It's not necessarily just aimed at your local church, but it really is evangelistic, but it's kind of out there. It's, it's public. Um, I, I can see where that, where that would be uh, the kind of thing that you could do. Um, so that would be one thing. Just what are the categories that we're trying to do? We're trying to keep these in the realm of what, does, what is the church actually mandated to do? Uh, another thing that you might consider is the example of the New Testament, which is just bone dry on what I would call public square kind of engagement. Uh, everything that takes place in terms of going before governments or going into sort of public areas is in the realm of evangelization or of some other very specific purpose. So when Paul goes before kings and he is, he is doing this over and over again, he is testifying in defense of himself and of the church and the church's reputation in the world is, comes along kind of with that. And he, he is also trying to preach the gospel to every one of those rulers as he goes. And then uh, God had specifically said, Paul, you are going to preach my name before the kings, before the rulers, before Gentiles. And he ultimately wanted to proclaim the gospel message to Caesar. And that's what he did. You don't find any effort in Paul's, um, 
and his going through the whole book of Acts, you find nothing about him trying to change what the law is. You don't find him speaking about the working conditions of people in, you know, slavery in the Roman Empire, anything like that. You just find him, uh, he's trying to win the case using the legalities that are there. He appeals to Roman law. He appeals to the fact that he is a Roman citizen and so on. He uses those things. But the, he then, um, his, his goal is gospel-oriented. What is going to build up the church? What is going to proclaim Christ to other people? Uh, when he goes to Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17, what he's doing there is very specific. And we, we can look there. I think this, a, this would be a, a worthwhile exercise just to see what he's doing. If we, you all want to follow along here. Um, Acts 17. So he... In verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Well, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So what was Paul talking about? What was he doing? And it says, uh, some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know uh, what these things mean. So what is he doing in this public square, so to speak? What he's doing is he's preaching Christ. He's trying, he's, there's unbelievers there. And he says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to publicly proclaim the gospel. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This is just what seems to happen over and over and over again. Um, and I want to talk at the end of today about the, maybe some of the things that we might do instead. But uh, it can be easy for us to slip into a public square in terms of um, things that are not quite as biblical, like morality um, or law. Things that we might have like, in common with people who would, be, who would uh, have God's common grace or who would have their, uh, God's law written on their conscience the way that all men do. And it can be easy to make that kind of the focus of it. Um, one more thing, um, Patrick, since you've graciously given the opportunity to me to riff on this, is uh, that there is an allure and a danger of trying to operate in the public square. And, and that happens in, in particular in terms of um, seeking academic respectability or popularity among men. We'll even talk later this morning about woe to you when all men speak well of you. And the kinds of things that we're tempted to do to get an audience are, are really, um, there's something that we should watch out for. Um, so maybe there, there, are, there are people who have, in the name of wanting to kind of make Christianity more uh, spoken of in, in um, secular academic settings and so on, they kind of forget the reality of indwelling sin, uh, of not just indwelling sin, but of, uh, but of the hard heart of the unbeliever who just is operating on a different ground, a different fundamental basis. And until they believe the truth of the gospel, they're not going to change that. So we're going to have a hard time finding acceptability when the gospel itself and when scripture is our standard. Um, so those are just a few things that just initial thoughts on that, um, that I don't know if that is exactly what you want to hear or what's, you know, what's helpful on that, but uh, but that, that's that's how I'm running on that stuff when I think about public square. Yeah, well, I might mention too, and I'm glad you said that because that does remind me that, about the idea that there is a freedom that we have to to operate in that way, and and I don't want to downplay that. Like anybody who's a Christian 
is free to go and to speak at an event or to go, you know, you could go stand at, um, uh, on the, at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And if you can get an audience together, you can talk about anything you want to. That's perfectly biblically permissible. You, well, I mean, as long as it's not an ungodly speech. But uh, with that qualification, yeah, you can, you can do whatever you want on that front. The issue is, does the church have a uh, does the church have a mandate to sort of get involved in all of that stuff? And uh, are there are there dangers that we would want to consider in as far as doing that? And I, and I do want to talk about a few of those dangers as we um, when we wrap up today. So, but yeah, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Yeah. Okay. What else? Yeah, Mark. So you notice a pattern in major election cycles of uh, presidential election cycles, I assume, of the attention and the reasoning changes among people that you observe and, and they stop talking so much about scripture and stop making their assessments based on scripture and then it becomes more about other kinds of ideas. Is that, yeah, yeah it's, it's very much worth uh, knowing and being aware of our tendencies on that and making sure that we don't let that happen. Um, it's, it's one thing maybe to pay uh, to pay attention to what's going on around us. It's another thing to just abandon the way of thinking about it biblically and to let that dominate the way that we, um, the way that we interact with people and so on. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay, what else? Anything else? Yeah, Daniel. Yes, we are all, not all maybe, but uh, many times that we are too quick to just question someone's salvation if they disagree with us on, on something. So that, that can happen when it comes to the political realm as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me mention a few things about if you do have aspirations of running for office. Most of the stuff that we already talked about applies here. But um, I would just make sure that you're thinking about time. Do you have the time to do it and still fulfill your other responsibilities? Um, what opportunities do you have to actually make this happen? What could you do? Um, you know, would you be able to reach the level that you want? How realistic is that? Do you have the skills to do it? Do you have the skills for the job? Um, politics is, um, you know, when, when you watch it from the couch, it's a lot easier than it is when you actually get into it. So just, you know, be, be aware of that. Uh, I think that you guys are probably, you have probably noticed if you've been following for any length of time that uh, there, there, there seem to be candidates that come along every so often that it's like, well, this person is, this person is a sincere Christian. 
sincere Christians, sincere Christian, and we're like, I want to pull for this guy. And then there's something where it comes up where it just kind of turns out that they don't have the chops for the political race or for the office because they just don't know about all the issues and they don't know, they don't, uh, they don't know how to field gotcha questions and respond in certain ways. And so they're just not particularly skilled politically and, uh, and they can kind of easily make an uh, embarrassment of themselves despite being very faithful believers. So you really want to make sure that you have the, um, that you have the requisite skills to carry out, to carry out something like that. Um, that's more of a practical thing, not, not that you're being unfaithful to the Lord if you do that. Uh, but then I would just highlight the idea of integrity. Integrity, just know that uh, like many other things, but maybe more so when it comes to politics than almost anyone else or almost any other kind of profession or field, there are compromises that you would be tempted to make. Um, and you would need to be prepared to be a person of integrity in order to, uh, to avoid those kinds of things the kinds of forces that are going to pull at you and, and challenge you on that front. Um, you need to, to recognize that. You also should consider, we've talked about this verse a few weeks ago, but 1 Peter 3, 15, I, I want to just highlight this as, as we think about being in such a position. 1 Peter 3, 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience in the thing in which you are slandered, uh, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Um, there is no way to completely avoid being attacked for your faith. You ought to be prepared to give a defense for what you believe in the right kind of way. You give, give an answer, uh, explain what the scripture actually says about things. If you're gonna put yourself in kind of a high profile situation, you ought to be able to, uh, to articulate what the gospel is. You ought to be able to defend certain positions that you know are going to be um, attacked and to clarify those and then to be willing to be attacked and to not respond in the way that the world would if you are attacked for those things. So you just want to keep this in mind as well. Do you have the kind of integrity? Do you have the kind of strength of character where you could do this? Do you have the kind of gospel understanding and commitment to the truths of Scripture on key matters to be able to handle those kinds of things? Um, or are you going to be completely unprepared and bring the gospel under reproach for not handling those things in a way that honors the Lord? So just a few of those that you might consider if you ever have aspirations of running for office. Uh, Christians are free to do that. Christians have brought blessing to the world in times past by doing that. There's nothing wrong inherently with running for political office and the world would be, um, would be a, a, very, uh, a very good place in many ways if there were faithful and wise believers who were in many of the roles that are available. So it's not that this wouldn't be of benefit, it's not that there's not a place for it, but we, we have to be prepared properly if we're going to do it. And we need to also be realistic about the, uh, the scope of our potential influence. And I wanna talk about that too as well in a moment. So um, I wanna just give you a few things from, there was a, a message a long time ago that, um, that was given, um, most of you are familiar with John MacArthur, and he wrote a, um, he, he gave a sermon that I thought was particularly helpful in just highlighting some of these issues called uh, The Deadly Dangers of Moralism. The Deadly Dangers of Moralism. And in that message, he lists 16 
dangers of moralism, and uh, some of them overlap, and there might be one or two that I think are, um, uh, that, that he might even revise at this point, but uh, there are several of these that, I, and I'm just mentioning this because I want to give him credit for these uh, when I bring them up. One of the driving reasons why people get involved in politics is because they're concerned about the morality of the country or their, their state or their local school district or whatever it is. And they, are, they want things to be changed, and they want them to be changed for the sake of their own living in them because they don't want their kids to have to deal with certain things. Um, they don't want their grandparent or their grandchildren to go through certain things. So there is, there is always going to be this pull when you look around, and you're like Lot going to Sodom. Second Peter says that Lot was provoked in his spirit every day by the stuff that he saw. I mean, he hated it. He looked around, and he saw the sin, and he was like, this is, this is horrible. Every day. So we, we look around, we see that kind of stuff, and we say, well, we've got the opportunity to clean that up because we can get the right people in office to do it. We can change the laws to do it. There's a degree of agency that we feel like we have on a governmental level that uh, encourages us and entices us to try to make that the means by which we change people's morality around us. And uh, it is good that we would have laws that prevent certain things. You know, it would have been better, I would argue, for Sodom if there had been some uh, either laws or at least consequences in place for the kinds of behaviors that were going on there that actually prevented the judgment of God from falling on them. This wouldn't have been worse for Sodom. Um, but it also, if they had those things, would not necessarily have meant that a single, other, that a single person from Sodom was saved and entered the kingdom of God. And we have to just look that reality right in the eyes and say that changing the culture and changing morality that goes on is in one sense very good and it's what we would prefer. But at the same time, it's not the same thing as the heart change of the gospel. So I just want to give you a, a few of these that I thought were were helpful for the dangers of moralism, of trying to make whatever part of society more moral and doing so through um, campaigns that often overlap with politics. Um, one of these is that it's not our commission. It's not our commission. Instead, preaching the gospel is. Um, preaching the gospel, uh, bringing the message of reconciliation, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, that we are proclaiming that God is willing to forgive us of our sins. That is the message that we have. Our commission is to make disciples of all the nations and it is to preach the gospel so that is what our focus is. Um, uh, another point is that it often wastes uh, immense amounts of precious resources, time, money, and human energy. And it isn't that there are not things along the way that happen that can be kind of good. But um, it is, you know, it, one of the worst things that you can do is doing the wrong things really well doing a really good job and being really efficient at doing something that you shouldn't be spending your time doing at all. And so it can be when it comes to this. And it's not so much that the things themselves are bad, it's what it causes you to not be able to get done. So if you are spending your time trying to change the culture in a moral sense, but this is done to the neglect of gospel proclamation or of discipleship in and through the church, then you're running into problems because you only have so much time and energy and so on. So when you think about uh, various nonprofits and think tanks and, um, and initiatives and things like that, um, what do they take up that could be funneled through the institution that Christ has promised to build, which is the church? 
So how, how could that be redirected to do what Jesus specifically told the church to do instead of just doing things that kind of are more generally moral? Um, one of the, uh, the additional concerns that was mentioned in this message is that it, uh, morality or cultural morality, as he calls it, creates morality without theology. Creates morality without theology. Um, theology, when you have to talk about it and debate it and, and um, come together over it, can cause division. We don't really want to talk about that. But it can create just people who are good Christian men. Good people who don't know a thing about Christ. Don't know a thing about God. Don't know a thing about the Bible. And they can think that they are good Christian people because they do good Christian things. But it, there's no theological basis. It creates morality without theology. Uh, another point that he makes is that it misunderstands what salt and light actually is. Where do we learn about salt and light in the Bible? Salt and light, salt and light. You know what chapter of the Bible? Or what section? Matthew 5, that's right. And it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Okay, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And he is speaking there uh, to his disciples. He, uh, I would even argue, has a little bit more of a focus, at least at that very moment, upon um, his, upon the, the nation of Israel, although they have, um, they have been set aside, as Romans 9, 10, 11 tell us, and that the people of God um, in the present age is not that nation. It is the church, which then carries on a similar function. And we are salt to the world, light to the world, not by going and making everyone else do all the external things that we do, but instead by being a visible picture of what God is like, by being a sort of preserving influence that salt is, by being distinct, by being different, and then doing what we do that is unique. It has really nothing to do with a mandate to go and to tell everyone else that you're supposed to be salt and light without Jesus. Or you're supposed to be like us, except for it's okay if you don't have the Jesus part. So uh, we, we don't just go and try to keep morality in the culture by changing what other people are doing directly. It is more about what we are, and then we proclaim the gospel message and all of the scriptures as we do that. Um, there is uh, the danger of creating unholy unions between believers and unbelievers. Unholy unions between believers and and unbelievers, and this goes along with another danger, which is that it leads to inclusivism. Inclusivism, stretching the boundaries of who is part of God's kingdom. You start to say, well, this person can't be that bad. They're against abortion alongside of me. This person can't be that bad. They don't want these same things being taught in school that I don't want being taught in school. This person can't be that bad. They hold the same moral standard about what a political uh, office holder should be doing or should not be doing. This person can't, they, surely they can't be that bad. They say they're a Christian. They, they don't do all of those things that the other side of the aisle does. So maybe they, maybe they are. Maybe they are. And it can cause a neglect of the dividing line of the gospel itself. It dumbs down the gospel. It, it dilutes the gospel. And it leads us to start to just kind of think of people who are in our larger political or moral uh, sphere as, hey, everybody's a Christian. 
We're all just trying to do the same thing, trying to make a difference in the world, trying to make the world a better place, trying to bring things under subjection to the lordship of Christ together, even if they have not uh, brought Christ as Lord over their own hearts by repenting and believing the gospel. Um, Also, he notes, I think rightly so, that morality or moralism and doing so in this political and cultural sense especially becomes selective as to the sins that it attacks, selective as to the sins that it attacks, more than willing to overlook the um, marital infidelity of politicians as long as they are against uh, homosexuality, willing to overlook greed and mistreatment of certain people, and I don't just mean having wealth, I mean actual mistreatment and greed, um, as long as they're willing to hold to the preferred way of you know, making certain other moral laws. Um, it's just selective. And so if someone is accomplishing the things that we want to accomplish, we very easily overlook that person's particular sins and say, well, those aren't the worst ones. Those aren't the big ones. And we're going to kind of be quiet about those. Um, Another concern. It turns the mission field into the enemy. It turns the mission field into the enemy. And we do not want to start looking at people who need Jesus Christ as the ones who are uh, needing to be attacked by us. When we engage in spiritual warfare, we are not attacking unbelievers. We are attacking ideas. We are attacking demonic teachings, the doctrines of demons, Paul calls them. And we are fighting against that. We're fighting against sin. We're fighting against error. We're fighting against false doctrine. We're fighting against false teachers, yes, in some way. But we are not fighting against unbelievers. And unfortunately, that does become where this goes, where you battle against unbelieving people and say, this is, you are my enemy. And a lot of times it's because they get in the way of something that we want as Christians, that we have a disproportionate desire for, that we have turned into an idol of sorts. Other times it's because when they attack our ideas or us, We are personally offended by that or even scared of what they're going to do. And we say, I'm going to be against this person. I have to respond. They have made themselves my enemy. And instead of seeing them as someone who needs Christ, we see them as someone that gets in the way of our living a life that we want to live. Um, And then he also mentions, and this is the last one that I'll cover. And you can can find that yourself if you want to read the rest of them. But um, it brings persecution and hatred of Christians for the wrong reasons. Persecution and hatred of Christians for the wrong reasons, which is if, you know, if you're going to be persecuted, let it be for the sake of Christ, not because you have just unquestioningly attached yourself to some politician that many people hate or because you've attached yourself to some group that some people hate. Um, if you're going to, to suffer for, for something, let it be for, being su- for suffering for the sake of the gospel, suffer for the sake of Christ. This is what scripture tells us to do in 1 Peter 4. Uh, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but it's to glorify God in this name. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't want what people think about the gospel to be dependent upon what someone I attach myself to does who's not a Christian. I don't want their, you know, whatever they think, their own personal moral standard to be the standard by which then I and in turn Christ and his gospel is judged if they know that I'm a Christian. 
So I'm not going to just throw myself in with someone else and say, yeah, we're together on this. And they say, oh, really? So you're part of that group. So be careful about that. Make sure that you suffer. If you're going to suffer, if it's up to you, um, suffer as a Christian. Make sure you don't suffer for reasons of, um, of allying yourself with people and things that, uh, that would bring reproach upon the name of Christ. So these are just a few dangers that I, I would encourage you to consider. Uh, I do want to talk um, upcoming soon, and I know the timing is unfortunate on this because isn't there a primary election going on? Um, but I do want to talk about voting. So hopefully you can, um, hopefully you can take these things and apply them uh, as, as you go forward. And then uh, we'll, talk about, we'll talk about voting and maybe one or two other things before we wrap up this series. So uh, it is time to be done. If you have any questions for me, I'd be glad to talk or we can address them in class next week. So let me pray. God, thank you that we can, uh, that we can learn from your word on these matters. And uh, please give us wisdom as we apply them to, to make sure that we are pursuing your ends and that we are also careful in the way that we, um, the way we might evaluate um, other people who are also trying to pursue what the scripture says on these things. We know that there will not be disagreement or not be a full agreement in any two people about exactly what the best course of action is in how to apply all of this that we're talking about. But I pray that you would help us to, uh, to pursue biblical goals. And we pray that Christ would be glorified through this. We do ask for, uh, for the things that we see that we don't like about the culture around us. Father, we do pray that you would that you would change them, and we pray that you, would, uh, that you would protect people from harm. We pray that where people are in sin against you, that, that this would be um, limited by, in its manifestations by the, the laws that are in place and put in place and the enforcement of them. We pray that you would ordain that to happen. Um, we pray that you would give us courage and that you would give us willingness to speak about anything that would be best and not to shrink back from what we ought to do. But we pray that you would help us to promote and proclaim the gospel of Christ so that people may be one to you and may, may dwell with you forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.